Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Diplomatic differences. Russia says the U.S. and NATO are failing to address its main concerns. Power pressure. The Fed's hawkish stance has investors in a tailspin. And supply slowdown. Tesla's profits beat, but the chip shortage limits production. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always as Fed Chair Jay Powell provides a hawkish scare and stock market gains vanish into virtual thin air. Elon Musk riding high with Tesla's profits on a tear. Apple's earnings are up next. Another firm with no chips to spare. And in the UK, the Sue Gray Partygate reports still nowhere. Will all the strain mean yet wilder Boris Hare? Yes, we're struggling there from messy hair to messy markets. There's the connection. U.S. futures volatile. The Nasdaq giving up a 3% gain on Wednesday to close virtually unchanged. But just released economic numbers helping give futures a bit of a boost and Europe's higher to no recovery in the Asia session, however, just pressure Japan down 3%. The Nikkei now in deep correction territory, down 14%, in fact, from recent highs. Investors clearly rattled, I think, by the Fed's tightening message, summed up by the 80s hit song, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. No, I'm not singing. Fed Chair Jay Powell, though, stressing that the jobs market is strong enough to absorb aggressive rate hikes if high inflation demands it. The problem, of course, for investors is that the ultimate Fed endpoint here is unknown. And the Fed doesn't know either. That's also the point. So everyone is effectively winging it. The good news, though, the U.S. economy is flying into this tightening cycle. The first look at U.S. fourth quarter GDP shows the economy expanding at a faster than expected rate of almost 7%, the fastest pace, in fact, since the 1980s. Economic growth solid now. Can the Fed pull off a soft landing? That is the critical question. But first, to our main driver, and that's Ukraine. The U.S. says it's laid out a diplomatic path forward to prevent a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Moscow says America's response fails to address their key concern, any eastward expansion of NATO. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, there are fears Russia wants to destabilize the country from within. We believe that plan A for Russia now is to use the threat of force to destabilize Ukraine internally, to sow panic, and to uh, force us into concessions. Uh, military operation is plan B. However, this plan A consists of many um, instruments of hybrid warfare. This includes not only amassing troops, but also cyber attacks, uh, disinformation campaigns, Nick Robertson is in Moscow for us. Nick, it's fascinating because those comments about destabilizing from within is exactly what the Naftogaz CEO said he feared yesterday, far more perhaps than an invasion. And you could argue we've been seeing that going on in Ukraine now for, for many years. And you can still do that while you're on the surface saying the diplomacy will continue. And that's the challenge for NATO and allies. It is. And by virtue of their very moves, uh, reinforcing uh, a deterrence message by reinforcing uh, troop numbers closer to Russia, the very thing that Russia says is that it doesn't want, uh, Russia then turns around and says, well, that's actually cover for a provocation on the other side. You know, the narrative over the past few days was that the provocation would come around the Donbass region. Um, you had separatists there appealing to the Russian government to get more uh, weapons from the Russian government because 
they say that the Ukrainian side's getting weapons from the United States, so they want more support. You, you had the Russian government saying that they believe that the Ukrainian government is trying to spark something around that Donbass region. Um, perhaps some of the, the temperature went out of that temporarily, if you will, yesterday with that meeting um, in, in Paris. Uh, and now where both all sides have committed to uh, holding the ceasefire and they'll have another meeting in two weeks in Berlin. So maybe that area of, of, of potential spark to cause a bigger fire, maybe that's tamped down a bit. But I think the focus comes back on the big central issues, and that is Russia's response to the United States letter. And the first read from the foreign minister and from the Kremlin is it doesn't get at the core issues. Um, I, I think there's some light there because they say, look, it does it, it, on some of our secondary concerns, yes, it addresses those. But really, it's, it's Russia's move uh, now. How does it respond, given that it's not got what it wants on its, on its core issue? Uh, and that's an open question. But the answer is going to come soon, we're told. Yeah, and they knew that already. They'd had that verbal response. They knew they weren't going to get what they were asking for, whether they got this document or not, even though clearly now they have it. Nick, what's your sense? What next from Russia's perspective? Because they've said they'll take their time here to, to consider it. Yeah, look, I, I mean, Julia, you, we're speaking on your business show here, right? So let, let's give some business type analogies. Right. I mean, very few CEOs, presidents, right, um, go into uh, difficult commercial territory possibility of sanctions, not having a real understanding of, of what's at play on the shop floor of the factory or what's at play, you know, what all the moving pieces are and how they can, you know, and how they could be factored in. And I think certainly the Russian uh, president knew that he was going to get a letter back that wasn't going to give him what he wanted. So I think, you know, the, the leadership here, although they're saying let's not rush, it takes time to formulate a position. You know, I think the position in their minds is already there, the number of, number of options that they have and which one they take. So I don't think that, that there, isn't, there isn't a big shock to the political system here because all this has sort of been baked into the price of getting into these talks this way. Remember, they precipitated all of this. So they've taken the initiative every step along the way here. So I, I think while the world looks to them for their answer, they probably have that already. And they're probably already looking several moves ahead. Yeah. I mean, I guess the difference within a business analogy is that in most cases, you're, at least your exec committee has some sense of where you're headed. And in this case, the CEO or, or Vladimir Putin, perhaps the only one who knows where he's headed. Um, hmm. Nick Robertson, great to have you on, as always. Thank you. A swift action against Russia. The Financial Times reporting the European Central Bank has warned lenders with significant exposure to Russia to prepare for sanctions against Moscow, including potentially cutting it off from the global financial network known as SWIFT. Anna Stewart is here to explain more. Anna, great to have you with us. We've talked about SWIFT on this show once or twice in the past when we're talking about crypto alternatives. Just explain to us, if you can briefly, what SWIFT is and what the implications would be of cutting a country like Russia off for it because the ripple effects go far beyond one nation. And that is certainly the issue here. So SWIFT is essentially a high security network that links financial institutions around the world. It underpins financial transactions for some 11,000 uh, banks and other institutions across 200 countries. It's what replaced Telex uh, in the 1970s. Now, why is this important? What would it do firstly for Russia? Well, if it were to be cut off, you could see massive, massive capital outflows for firms that rely on foreign financing. 
uh, you could see serious currency volatility. Uh, this was something that was worrying about for Russia back in 2014 with the illegal annexation of Crimea. And the finance minister then said the economy could shrink by 5%. Now, since then, they have tried to put some contingency planning in place. They've actually come up with their own version, SPFS. The problem is you can't really create a viable alternative to this because it is global, it is standardized, it is trusted, it is underpinning a global financial system. And anything you come up with domestically will, of course, only really be used by your financial institutions within that country. So this has big ramifications. But as you say, there's also such potential for fallout, not least if you consider uh, the investments that the world has within Russia. The EU, for example, is the biggest foreign investor. 2019, I believe its uh, investments were valued at some $350 billion. And then there's also the risk right now of retaliation. And we've spoken about this a lot. But of course, uh, Russia holds many of the cards when it comes to energy security, again, particularly with Europe. So those are some of the issues and some of the fallout that you could see if this sort of tool were to be used. Yeah. How does uh, Europe pay for its energy imports if it it can't wire some money over uh, to to the Russian government or to the controllers Gazprom, of course, of, of, of Russia? Hmm. And there is precedent for this, though, of course. And I think that's the only comparison, really, we can make because Iran was switched out, taken out of the SWIFT network, what, back in, I believe it was 2000 and um, 2012. And there were significant protests at the time there, too. Resistance, let's call it that. Yeah, resistance from all sorts of different fronts, including, of course, from SWIFT, which is run as a cooperative. Uh, It's got 25 board members, banks from different parts of the world, including, in fact, Russia, uh, is unlikely to want to go down that route. It likes to see itself as a neutral body. However, as you say, there is precedence and uh, America certainly can pressure it to do this. It successfully did so in 2012 with Iran. The thing is, Russia and Iran, they're not really that comparable. Russia's economy is absolutely massive compared to Iran's. And again, it's so interconnected financially. I thought it was really interesting this week, the German uh, foreign minister said to a a German newspaper that when you're looking at this sort of option, it may be, she said, the biggest stick, but it's not necessarily the sharpest sword. And I think that's why this is likely to be maybe a last resort option on the table, because I think it will struggle to get enough backing. Yeah, it's um, you smack somebody with a stick, but it hurts you as as well. It hurts your hand as much as it hurts them. <laughs> I think that's the um, maybe not as much, but still hurts. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. OK, no swift fix for the Fed as it revs up its battle against inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell warning of protracted monetary tightening during his press conference yesterday. He says the economy can handle it and just released economic data, as we've mentioned already, that GDP data backs him up. Christine Romans is here. Christine, you can give me your take, but I feel like he couldn't have communicated better on the things that they do know and the things that they want to do. The problem is there's so many implications and things that they don't know, the number of rate hikes, the speed at which they perhaps reduce the balance sheet, that you're going to create instability just by discussing it. Exactly. And look, let's be real clear here. The Fed chief yesterday said the economy is strong. The economy can handle multiple you know, rate hikes with plenty of room to go before it would hurt the economy. And that's what rattled, uh, rattled some folks without the specificity, but saying that maybe they could go a little faster um, than, than the market had, had thought. And then you get this GDP number this morning that shows you, wow, the U.S. economy, strongest since the 19. 80s in 2021 ended the year very strongly. Um, It gives 
the Fed room to, you know, ready, set, hike, I guess here, right? So this is, we're, <laughs> to mix my sports metaphors, we are off to the races. I mean, this 2022 will be the year of, of, of higher interest rates, drawing down that balance sheet. And the only thing we need to know now is when, how, and how much, but it's here. Yeah, there's just so much fear out there because we're unused to a, a Federal Reserve that's in tightening mode. But to your point, the conditions, be it inflation, be it the yeah. jobs recovery, be it the growth that the economy is experiencing now, argues that conditions should be tighter. Financial conditions shouldn't be this easy. It's fascinating to me if I sort of tie it to what we're seeing in terms of the stock market. Um, I think I read this morning the average Nasdaq stock's down 44% from recent highs. The oh. S&P 500 average stock is down is down 17%. Um, guys, I feel like we have to get a grip here. Well, yeah. And a lot of people have been looking at what happened the last time we were in a rate hike mode for the Fed, right? It was in 2018. And you had two or three months where the S&P 500 lost something like, I want to say, a little more than 20 percent, maybe uh, 25 percent, right? But then what happened after that? Well, it was the Fed tightened interest rates and conditions were perfectly fine and the economy continued to to grow and the stock market continued to do well and made years and years and years of records uh, beyond that. The difference is we don't really have a playbook for where we are now, right, Julia? Because you've got to you got to you got to stop the asset purchases. You got to start hiking rates and you have to draw down the pile of assets that they already have. So that's sort of these three things that we don't really have a, a, a game book for how or playbook for how that's going to how that's going to ha- happen. Also, you know, our colleague Julia Horowitz yesterday had a really great piece about how don't freak out about rate hikes, guys. Over time, rate hikes sometimes, you know, switching from easing, easy money to tighter money has actually been good longer term. You know, that's the Fed fine tuning, uh, fine tuning. And then, you, you, you know, that, that's good for you longer term. So she had some great analysis and perspective on that, too. Yeah, worth reading. I feel like if you look at a long, a long term chart of the S&P 500, um, you know, it looks like it went straight up. But within that, you've got plenty of corrections and some of them big. It's your perspective here. If you're looking on a five day, a 10 day, a five month perspective versus a long term perspective, um, things can look very different. Um, Yeah, they've got some work to do. They've got some challenges, but they'll watch financial conditions and the response in the real economy closer perhaps than they ever have before. There's a lot of there's a lot of headline risk. There really is. And remember, the the Fed has a dual mandate, uh, inflation and employment. My 401k value is not actually in their mandate, but you know that they don't like to royal royal markets and they don't like to royal uh, the financial system. They're watching. (laughs) Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Some good news and some bad news for Elon Musk and Tesla. The good news, Tesla posted record earnings of $2.9 billion in the last quarter after shaking off supply chain issues that hammered much of the auto industry. The bad news, it won't be able to shake off those issues for much longer. CNN, Paula Monica joins me now. Great to have you with us, Paul. I mean, let's be clear. These were incredible earnings. And when you can't fulfill the sheer extent of demand that you're facing, it's sort of bad news, but it's good news. And there was a lot of good news in these uh, in these numbers. Yeah, sales are phenomenal for Tesla. The company is profitable. This is all good. And I think it's probably a reason why the stock at last check in pre-market trading was somewhat flat. It wasn't uh, you know, looking to be a major drop today. But make no mistake, the supply chain issues that have roiled the entire automotive industry are impacting Tesla as well. And Elon Musk came on the earnings call to discuss that and was pretty clear that 
The company is going to prioritize deliveries of its current vehicles because there is such strong demand and not really step up production of newer models just yet. That might be a slight disappointment for uh, the Tesla bulls, but I don't think that Tesla is going to be abandoning any of these plans for the long haul. They may just take a little bit longer to get things done because of supply chain constraints. And let's be honest, Tesla is a company that has been notorious for not exactly making those deadlines that Elon Musk first promised. He would be a terrible journalist. <laughs> yeah, Elon Musk time. You know, Dan Ives, who's a regular on this show, said in his note um, that they could have the capacity to deliver two million vehicles by the end of this year from, from one million a year ago. And if you have to prioritize something, you're know, getting those deliveries out there rather than tinkering with the $25,000 car that he promised or the Cybertruck, quite frankly, if it's about making sure that you've got the degree of market share and you've got those vehicles out there as more competition comes on. It sort of makes sense to me for for a number of reasons. And there was things that we heard there. Um, yes, you're going to have to wait if you like the Cybertruck. Many people were a little bit cautious on this one. Um, but it was the battery cell technology that they're working on for, for the Y vehicle that was fascinating to me, too. We have a, a, a fascination, I think, with new technologies in batteries on this show, Paul. Did that capture your attention, too? Oh, without doubt, Julia, definitely the newer batteries for the Model Y that Elon Musk has been talking about, that is going to be key to getting mass production of this vehicle, which is the more affordable version of the uh, you know, Model uh, X crossover. And it promises you know, longer battery life, uh, you know, a longer range, a higher power output, these 4180 batteries. So if they are able to start producing them at scale sometime soon, then that could mean that the Model Y will be yet another successful uh, model for uh, Tesla, just like the uh, S, the, the 3, and the X. But uh, the Cybertruck, yes, I think we're going to have to wait. My kid has a toy version of the Cybertruck, but there's not going to be one in anyone's garage anytime soon. You have to stick with that one for now. <laughs> Paula Monica, thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, robust chemical demand and pricing power makes a winning formula for Dow Inc. The CEO joined us after the break. And the metaverse is just, well, so meta right now. The risks and rewards of buying virtual land and virtual yachts. Yes, that's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, U.S. futures higher sentiment consolidating, I think, around after that stronger than expected read on U.S. GDP. A strong economy will help cushion the blow from the Federal Reserve intent on guiding inflation lower. Markets now pricing in some five U.S. rate hikes this year. In the meantime, Brent crude touching $91 a barrel today. Natural gas also higher on continued Ukraine uncertainty. Now, rising prices driving better than expected results at chemicals company Dow. It says net operating income surged more than 160 percent in the final three months of 2021. Compared to a year earlier, sales were up by a third. Volumes dipped slightly, but that was more than offset by Dow hiking prices for its products, which are used in everything from packaging to textiles and electronics. The company's forecasting sales will improve further this quarter. Joining us now from Dow's headquarters in Midland, Michigan, is the CEO and chairman, Jim Fitterling. Jim, always great to have you on the show and congrats on a solid quarter. I have to say, when I was looking through the highlights, though, I found myself counting the number of times you mentioned uh, supply constraints and challenges, and it has been and was another quarter of that, and it continues. 
Well, good morning, Julia. Thank you for having me. Always good to see you. We had a very good quarter. Uh, supply mm-hmm. constraints for us uh, kind of took took on two dimensions in 2021. Obviously, you'll remember the freeze in Texas that happened about this time last year, and that took a lot of capacity offline, and that had depleted inventories. And then we had a very strong year. Demand for all of our product lines was very strong in 2021, but that didn't allow us to really catch up with inventories. And then in fourth quarter, a hurricane in the Gulf Coast and obviously the supply disruptions related to, really related to people being able to report in for work as the Omicron wave swept through, uh, kind of curtailed exports. We did see uh, in the month of December the best marine-packed cargo shipments, exports out of the United States that we saw since March. That's great. And we're seeing continual steady improvement. So as we move forward into 2022, uh, we're expecting global GDPs 4 to 4.5%. Uh, for us, that should translate into about 6% volume growth. I think uh, prices have moderated somewhat from from the big spike that we saw second and third quarter, but it's still going to be a very solid year, uh, and demand still looks good, whether you look at packaging, housing, and all the implications of housing, which uh, for durable goods and appliances, furniture and bedding has been very positive, uh, electronics, uh, automobiles, especially electric vehicles, which have more content, uh, and we're starting to see the personal care markets uh, come back. Those had been um, impacted quite a bit from uh, COVID. So um, I, I think we've got uh, really good demand uh, and inflation. A little bit of inflation for our markets historically over the last 30 years has always been positive. It's always led to outperformance in our sector. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we were just talking there about the Federal Reserve and, of course, the whole world, I think, watching closely what the United States does to try and sort of tamper down some of the inflation that we're seeing. You obviously have a great sense of to what extent the market can withstand higher prices, what the supply chain bottlenecks feel like and and the sort of pent up demand that still exists. Are you worried that the, the Federal Reserve gets this wrong and perhaps clamps down on some of the still recovering uh, economics that we're seeing and, and still need to see? Or do you think now's the right time to move based on what you're, you're feeling? You've seen many of these cycles. No, I'm, I'm not worried. I mean, we, you have to keep an eye on it. And I, I really appreciate uh, Fed Chair Powell looking for the signal uh, in the data. You know, it's very noisy out there right now, and it's very <laughs> emotional. And you've got to find the signal in all of that. And I think they're trying not to overreact. Uh, they don't want to create that situation, so I think they're they're trying to be prudent. And they've got two levers they're trying to pull. One is uh, the tapering and one is raising rates. And I think, you know, a month ago people were worried they were going to pull them both at the same time, and now people worry they're going to go to another extreme. So there, there's a balanced uh, view in here that I think we're going to get to. Um, I, I think that the demand side is still really good. And we're working through the pandemic. I think most people have their head around moving on and getting on with things uh, and getting back to normal. We have to remember there's still good consumer strength. Uh, there's still some pent-up demand. Most all supply chains are below their normal levels, and they don't have the kind of stock to get service levels up to customers. So that, to me, means we're going to have a strong 2022, and that's what we're getting ready for. 
Yeah, sort of echoing uh, Jay Powell there, we do have the strength to withstand this. Um, you know, you're one of the most outspoken um, CEOs on innovative ways to tackle our carbon footprints and promote sustainability. And I saw something that you did last year and I meant to, made a mental note to, to ask you about it because you were, you've got a collaboration with um, Ralph Lauren, EcoFest collaboration, and it's a new process for dyeing cotton. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, requiring 90% less chemicals, 50% less energy and 50% less water. And you've also made the technology open source because you're saying, look, this could benefit a lot more beyond just the two of you and the two brands. This feels pretty important, Jim. Yeah, this is an area that, that most people wouldn't think of. But one of the oldest chemistries in the business is uh, textile dyeing. Right. And, um, and because cotton is cotton is difficult to dye you have to use a lot of energy a lot of water a lot of pressure you use a lot of materials and force it into the cotton and we came up with a a chemical process that actually changes the charge on the cotton which means you don't need as much chemicals and you don't have to have all that energy and pressure and you don't create all that wastewater it's one of the single largest uh, wastewater producing processes in the world and so um, Ralph Lauren has been a fantastic partner uh, we showcased it uh, with the launch of the uniforms uh, for the U.S. Olympics team yes. for the Tokyo Olympics. But, um, you know, they're a proxy. They are the world leader from my standpoint. And, you know, cotton has been a part of their portfolio for so long. And um, we're trying to get the mills to adopt that. And we're having good success. And that was the reason for the open sourcing is if we can convert those mills, then you're going to see that show up in a lot of other things that you buy and use every day. Think about uniforms for a FedEx or a UPS driver, uh, uniforms for a factory worker, your jeans. Um, you're probably wearing more of these days because you're working from home and doing other things. Uh, so that's good. I think that's good for business. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. For an industry as well that comes under fierce criticism for its lack of attention sustainability and the sort of throwaway society, um, this is something that certainly caught my attention. Um, Jim, great to chat to you, as always. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Always great to see you. Congrats again. Likewise, Jim Fiddling there, the CEO and chairman. Thank of you. Stay we'll safe. This. You too. We'll see you after this. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. stock markets are up and running this Thursday, and we do have a higher open. Investors still trying to come to grips, I think, with the prospect of a much less market-friendly Fed. Rate hikes and bond yield run-ups are on the way, but the U.S. economy remains strong, and I think that is key from our discussions this morning so far. Just-released numbers show GDP rising at an almost 7% annualized rate in the fourth quarter of 2021. Robust growth should help lend support to corporate profits, too. Tesla reporting record earnings. Intel beating estimates. Both firms, however, constrained by the chip shortage and Intel is out with mixed guidance for the current quarter too. So those problems certainly lingering into 2022. Netflix shares also rallying in early trade. Activist investor Bill Ackman has built up more than a $1 billion stake in the streaming giant that disappointed on subscription growth numbers last week. And they'll be toasting strong sales at Diageo HQ as more people switch to premium drinks. The company's first half revenue jumped 16% and is now above pre-COVID levels despite inflation and supply chain disruption. Sales of tequila increased more than 55% and scotch grew by better than expected 25%. Joining us now is Diageo CEO Ivan Menezes. Ivan, great to have you with us and Happy New Year. I have to say, your results say that the recovery trade is in full swing. People are saying, get me back out there. And when they're out there or at home, 
they're spending more money on alcohol. Uh, hello, good to see you again. I, I would just say the trends we're seeing existed pre-COVID and they continue to be strong. Uh, people are drinking better, not more. So the premium end of the market is doing really well. And as we come out of COVID restrictions, the human desire to socialize outside the home is very strong, be it going to bars and pubs and, or uh, sporting events. And so when you look at our numbers, our sales were up 20%. Every region of the world grew double digit. Uh, our categories, Scotch whiskey grew 27%. Johnny Walker grew 31%. Our tequila business, which is largely in the US, uh, Don Julio and Casamigos grew 56%. Guinness came back strongly as bars and pubs opened in Europe and in Africa. So we're feeling good about the sustained trends and we're expanding our margins while we do this and investing in the business. And we think there's a good runway ahead for the company. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? And to your, your important point, we don't, um, we don't promote excessive imbibation of anything, any alcohol or anything else on this show. Um, so a qualified point there, not drinking more and drinking higher premium brands. Um, what about supply chain constraints? Because as you said, and you're giving me double digit growth in all sorts of brands that you've seen, to what extent could that perhaps have been larger had you not been held back to some degree, whether it's shipping costs, whether it's even just down to the basics like glassware in order to, to bottle some of these products? Yeah, sure, it is a little more challenging, but I would say we're fortunate in our supply chain teams and our partnerships with our suppliers, including the shipping lines. And we've been able to sustain, our business grew volumes 9% in this uh, last six months. Uh, we've been able to fulfill most of the demand. There are some crunch points, but uh, we believe we can navigate our way through this, uh, in part because of the scale and the expertise and relationships we built with the supply base. You know, Johnny Walker ships uh, seven bottles a minute to 180 countries around the world <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and has been doing it for 200 years. So we, we do have a bit of experience in dealing with global volatility. And I'm pleased because in these results, our business held or grew market share in 85% of the world. Uh, so uh, uh, the supply chain issues... Uh, we're navigating our way through it pretty effectively and it's, it's not having a material impact on the business. You know, that's fascinating. I remember you saying that to me last quarter as well about gaining or holding market share in 85% of, of your businesses. And I remember thinking afterwards, what about the 15% where you aren't? Where is that and what's the game plan for the 15%? It's just how my mind works. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Uh, well, we're clearly not satisfied. And these are uh, four or five countries, in, one in Latin America, one in Africa, one in... But it's it, over every period, you will have some markets not sustaining market share growth. They may have taken price increases. Uh, so it's not... 85 is a very high uh, bar to maintain. Uh, I'd be perfectly happy if two-thirds of our businesses were growing yeah. shares. So... We're, we're, we're doing a, the teams are doing an exceptional job right now. And it points to our portfolio, which over the years, we've added terrific brands like Casamigos and Don Julio, 
uh, we've also divested businesses that were not that attractive, like our wine business. And as a result today, we, we, we added to our investment in Baiju in China, and that's doing really well. So uh, the actions we've taken position the RGO better for the trends and where the world is going, and we feel very good about uh, uh, categories, brands, price points, and geographies in the global mix for the company. Yeah, 85% is about as close to perfection as it gets. Um, I hear the message and you've got some experience yeah. there to know what you're doing. Um, I do want to ask you about Russia too, because I know you've been uh, operating your own distribution network there for what, 15 years ago. So again, you've seen volatility, you've seen noise surrounding um, a nation like Russia and beyond in the past. We were just talking earlier on the show about some of the sanctions risk that's at least being discussed. Are you having a conversation at the board level about the what ifs in this case, or we've been here before and you're, you're not so worried? Can you give me your sense and, and wisdom? Sure. I mean, it's a relatively small business for the Arjo, so it's not a material position. Mm. Uh, we sell largely imported products into Russia, so the uh, whiskies and Johnny Walker do well. Uh, uh, we will, and we have over the decades gone through uh, volatility in, in, in Russia. Uh, we will stay the course. Our teams on the ground will execute. Uh, uh, and from a Diageo standpoint, I feel at any point in time when you operate in 180 countries, you're dealing with volatility and challenges yeah. in certain parts of the world. And so it's, uh, we, we will be able to handle it in the totality of our performance. Yes, I was about to say, if anyone understands volatility in, in certain parts of the world, in the east and beyond, um, it's Diageo. So congrats on some great numbers and um, congrats to you and the team again. Ivan Menez is the, the CEO of Diageo. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, coming up after the break, investors are shelling out for a fortune for a slice of the metaverse. With some assets costing nearly as much as those in the real world, why would that be? We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move, where we're leaving the real world for a moment and diving into the digital metaverse, where investors continue to shell out small fortunes to buy digital assets. Like this one, for example. Last year, an NFT of a super yacht sold for $650,000. I kid you not. That makes it the most valuable NFT in the what's known as the sandbox, a metaverse all of its own. Republic Realm, which sold the NFT, manages and invests in virtual real estate, gaming, and metaverse platforms. But even the fans of this metaverse gold rush warns it can come with risks. Janine Urio is the CEO of Republic Realm and she joins us now. Janine, fantastic to have you on the show. I, I read your CV and you have a background in physical real estate. So I think you're probably one of the best people to help us understand the similarities and, of course, the differences in, in digital real estate. Help us, please. What does it mean? <laughs> So happy to be here. So metaverse real estate is a really bad name for this, this idea, but we use it because we can't think of a better way to describe it. <laughs> metaverse real estate is basically designated pixels inside a software that's designed to mimic the real world in a video game-like environment. We call it real estate because they're designated and specific, but that's where the similarity ends. 
it's not like real estate in the sense that it is software, it is technology, it is highly risky and volatile, but it's also a really exciting time to be invested in this asset class as the whole world wakes up to what the metaverse is. And more importantly, businesses are starting to understand how important it is to be in the metaverse. Why? Why is it important to be in the metaverse? Because there is an entire generation of young people who are spending every single day in the metaverse. Children today are conducting most of their socialization in metaverses like Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox, and they expect something very different from the internet than the people who grew up in the Google and Facebook generation. They want to walk into immersive and video game-like environments that are interactive and social and meet their friends there and do all the things that you and I do on the internet, but in a very different format. And if companies want to start marketing to that generation that will soon have a lot of purchasing power, they're going to have to formulate a strategy and figure out how to build metaverse environments to attract customers there. Last year, over $41 billion of NFTs were sold, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to the $5 trillion e-commerce market. All of those consumers who grew up spending time in Minecraft and Roblox are going to want to buy things with their friends in stores that they can walk into. And so companies have to figure out how to build those stores. And that's where Republic Realm comes in. Yeah, I mean, this is the key, I think. And maybe it's an age thing, but it's this sort of intersection between what goes on in the physical world and what goes on in the digital world. Because even if we talk about the sandbox, and I know you've got this fantasy island collection of of villas there. And I mentioned that someone bought with crypto, let's be clear, a 650,000 digital yacht. And I think, I hate to keep using the word why, but I am a why child. Um, why would someone want to own a $650,000 NFT of a digital yacht? What does that mean in this specific metaverse? Is it just a status thing? It is a bit of a status symbol. It's like, you know, a lot of people want boats, but a few people in the world can afford some of the largest yachts in the world. And the Metaflower, which is that mega yacht that Republic Realm developed, is a status symbol. There's only one. But we're also creating things in the metaverse that are more accessible to a much broader audience. So, for example, today, we launched a new retail store concept in the metaverse called GFT Shop, and they're NFTs designed for gifting. We're doing that because we know people want to buy NFTs, but not everybody knows how. So this is an opportunity for people to go to the metaverse and buy an NFT that they can give as a gift. And we've launched it in concert with Atari because the metaverse is built on the backbone of the video game industry. And what better way to start than where the video gaming industry started for most of us with a much loved brand from Atari. It's their 50th anniversary. So we've designed our first edition collectibles that you can find at gftshop.com. That's shop with two P's, gftshoppe.com. And it's a retail store in the metaverse where you can go buy NFTs designed for gifting. The price point is much more accessible than the yacht. It's only about $250 to buy one of these gift boxes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an illustration, but are we only ever gonna be buying digital products? No, in the metaverse versus no. physical products, because this is this is no. I think this is for most people is where's the intersection of these two things, the on ramp, because you're sort of giving it to me there in something that's much cheaper um, than a you know multi thousand dollar yacht. But where's the intersection of these two things? Because that has to be established, I think, first. Here's the best example I can think of. So children are already spending lots of money on uh, wearables for their avatars. So Fortnite skins or clothing and Roblox. The idea of dressing up your avatar in uh, basically clothing that is a status symbol is something that's long established. And 
what we've done is taken that same behavior and made it more accessible for a large number of people. The best example I can think of is a clothing brand I heard of that is now selling clothing on their regular website in the following sizes, S, M, L, and V. And V stands for virtual. So people can go and buy a real world sweatshirt in size medium and buy one for their avatar that's completely virtual because those online and offline representation of their physical identity are becoming something very important for, again, this generation of people who does a lot of their socialization in the metaverse. And how much can you get away with charging for size V? It depends on what the market will bear, right? You know, I think a, a, a brand like Louis Vuitton can charge a lot more for their virtual clothing than a more mainstream brand can, but there is certainly a lot of latitude. It depends on things like scarcity and how desirable the items really end up being for that next generation. Yeah, I mean, that it kind of gets to the the core of the discussion really is judging value. I mean, we can talk about how you invest in real estate or, you know, for you that understands, again, a market of any kind, whether it's real estate in the physical world or others, how do people that are looking at this, how do they judge value? How do they judge demand and supply and scarcity? Do you just treat it, perhaps even in your mind, as an effective venture capitalist like any other market? It's so early. I mean, we're really at the equivalent of the prodigy and AOL days of dial-up for the metaverse. Yeah. So yeah. while the total transaction volume happening in the metaverse today is just a trickle, we're expecting massive numbers to come online. And anybody who's considering investing in metaverse real estate, which you can do through us at Republic Realm, but you have to think about building a very broad, diversified portfolio because it really is early stage venture capital where many of the platforms haven't launched yet and you're really investing on the strength of a team that you believe can build something that's innovative and more importantly, addictive. Very, yeah. Oh my gosh, the key word there, for better and for worse. I saw this great quote from you and I just want to, um, to read it because it goes to your point. Having been in it for four months longer than everybody else, we actually had a huge head start, which I, which I think says everything. Um, we've had experts in this field and admittedly it's early saying that 99% of NFTs will be worthless in the future. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think, but that's not necessarily a condemnation of the entire category. 99% of ends up in a landfill after a few months too. It doesn't mean that apparel isn't an enormous industry. Humans love consumerism and this is a new asset class that people are waking up to and they're having so much fun doing it. Buying NFTs isn't just about buying NFTs, it's about being part of a community and then mm -hmm. figuring out how to use them in the metaverse. Taking all of your uh, collectibles and displaying your collection, whether it's things that you can dress your avatar in or ways to decorate your metaverse home, there's so many possibilities and our digital identities are going to be just as important to us as our real world ones. We'll spend money creating that image if we have to. Yeah, I tell you what, Louis Vuitton and those brands out there are rubbing their hands together in the short term. We'll see about the long term. Jeannie, great to have you with us. Thank you for, for making it so simple. Jeannie Nuri there, the CEO of Republic Realm. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. With the Beijing Winter Olympics just a week away, big corporate sponsors continue to play it safe as they can. Selena Wang explains they're trying to walk that fine line between China and the US and beyond. Beijing is gearing up for the biggest show on earth, but the lead up for sponsors of the Winter Olympics has been quiet. Foreign brands are caught in the middle of diplomatic boycotts from outside China and fear of retaliation by the Chinese government and consumers. Whereas you would expect brands to sort of 
beat their chests and come out strong. Instead, what you found is that they've retreated into their sheds. Some of the largest Olympic sponsors like Airbnb, Coca-Cola, Intel, Procter & Gamble, and Visa have collectively spent billions to be a part of what's normally a marketing bonanza. They're being much more pragmatic advertisers, sticking with their evergreen themes. No one wants to be seen as a sponsor of human rights abuses. The muted global campaigns have focused on athletes with little mention of Beijing. They have paid top dollars to be associated with this incredible equity of the Olympics. And now they find themselves having to backtrack. While it's all quiet outside China, inside China, the sponsors are seizing the Olympic opportunity. Over Christmas, Coca-Cola had an online campaign to send free Olympic memorabilia to Chinese consumers, showing off an interactive exhibition at the Zhengzhou train station. Visa creating an emotional video 100 days before the Games. Procter & Gamble unveiling a beauty salon for athletes in the Olympic Village. But there's growing pressure from Washington and rights groups on these giant corporations to take a stand on China's human rights record. The Biden administration and other U.S. allies will not send government officials to the Winter Olympics as a statement against allegations of genocide in China's Xinjiang region, allegations that China strongly denies. But industry analysts say the priority of many Olympic sponsors for these games is to keep and grow their market share in China because retaliation can be swift and painful. CNN has reached out to all of the top Olympic sponsors. Most have either declined to comment or not responded. France-based Autos said, we fully abide by the IOC's strategy on human rights in addition to our own ethics and compliance program. Switzerland-based Omega and Germany-based Allianz said their focus is on the athletes. Allianz adding, we consider dialogue with civil society organizations to be very important and regularly exchange in our NGO dialogue on sociopolitical issues. They're all very cautious right now to not do something that uh, could be perceived as uh, insulting the Chinese government or the Chinese people. And last year, Nike, H&M and other Western brands faced a boycott in China because of a stand they took against the alleged use of forced labor in Xinjiang. Then in 2019, comments made by then Houston Rockets GM in support of Hong Kong pro-democracy protests almost ended a multi-billion dollar deal between the NBA and China. So for these Olympics, sponsors are likely to play it safe. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at jchatterleycn. And I have to go and watch some of them to understand them as well today. <laughs> Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>